Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Chris Martin, head of the university's Department of Economics, investigates the country's current financial crisis, looking at the underlying cause, the symptoms and the long-term effects. Colleagues, friends, good evening. My name is Jane Miller. I'm Pro-Vice Chancellor for Research here at the University of Bath, and it is my very great pleasure to introduce Professor Chris Martin, presenting his inaugural lecture as Professor of Economics and Head of the Department of Economics here at the University of Bath. Inaugural lectures are, I think, very special occasions. They give us the opportunity to learn about the latest in research from those people, like Chris, who are at the very leading edge of their subject. And after tonight's lecture, we're also going to have an opportunity to ask questions, so it will also be a chance for us to engage with some of the issues that we're going to hear about. Let me say a few words about Chris and his background um, before he came to Bath. Chris studied as an undergraduate at Bristol University, completed his master's degree at the LSE, and his doctorate at Birkbeck College, University of London. His doctoral thesis was on the topic of disequilibrium macroeconomics, which he tells me was very fashionable when he started, um, but it had become somewhat of a passing fad by the time he finished. So it's good to know that economics is not immune from fashion either. Um, Chris then took up academic appointments at Queen Mary College and at Brunel University. At Brunel, he was head of department. He was leader on their QAA, quality assurance, for those of you not up with all the initials, and RAE, research assessment. And he was also deputy head of school. So quite a roll call of tasks there. He joined the University of Bath in January 2009, perhaps hoping to escape some of those tasks. But then he became the first head of our newly formed Department of Economics six months later. Chris has published more than 25, has more than 25 published papers to his name in all the leading international economics journals. His research focus is on macroeconomics and monetary policy. So he's perhaps one of the few people who's benefited from the financial crisis recently. So I'm sure he's got enough research material to last him for many years to come. I'm very much looking forward to hearing his lecture tonight, and I'm sure that you are too. So without further ado, please allow me to, in to invite Professor Martin to present his inaugural lecture with the title, Monetary Policy and the Financial Crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Well, good evening, and, and thank you for coming. Um, we chose this uh, poster particularly because, as you can see, what we have is a piggy, a piggy bank and a man with a very large hammer, possibly about to break the piggy bank. And as you know, a lot of people have thought about, used to think of banks in terms of piggyback banks. Increasingly, people have thought of banks as casino banks. And what we see here is, because of the actions of the casino bank, the piggyback bank is about to be broken. And that's the story behind the poster. Okay. In the first kind of part of the talk, I'm going to talk a bit about the financial crisis. And I'm going to use plenty of examples, which actually are taken from a, a book, which I can very highly recommend. So rather than getting my facts and figures and my stories from obscure academic publications, I've actually got them from a best-selling book. 
It's got an awful title. It's called Whoops, which is probably the worst title you can imagine for a book. But it's an extremely well-written, extremely clear explanation of the financial crisis, why it happened, how we can stop it happening again. I, I recommend it very strongly. And so lots of the... In the first part of the talk, lots of the information I'm using is taken from there because it, it's very accessible, and I would recommend that for you. And there's a sort of style people have for these talks on the financial crisis. They start off with some big numbers and try and scare you. And so l let me continue in that vein. And rather like being an astronomer, I'm going to start off by talking about some very big numbers. I'm going to start, first of all, with just as a reference point, global GDP, the total amount of, of total spending in the world in a year, knocking just over $60 trillion. Huge number. Okay. That gives you a reference point. Now, every day in the foreign exchange markets, there's trading to the value of about $4 trillion. So global GDP in a year equates to about 15 or 16 days of trading in value in trading on the foreign currency markets. That's fine. So we're talking about very large numbers here. Just before the financial crisis hit its absolutely worst phase in autumn 2008, the total number of derivative contracts were 680 trillion, i.e. more than 10 times global GDP. So everything that we spend, everything that we earn globally for 10 years would not match the size of derivative contracts. So what are these things? What are these astronomical things? Derivatives are, cover a whole range of different things. They, they go from the very simple, for example, the most simple derivative contract is an agreement that I could make to buy, for example, a thousand barrels of oil in three months' time at a certain price or sell a 1,000 tonnes of copper for a given price at a certain time. Those, that sort of feature, uh, forward contract is, is very simple. It, they rapidly become more complicated. For example, you get into options, which is not selling something for a known price at a known date. It's giving you the ability, the right, but not the obligation to do so, or the right, but not the obligation to sell something at a certain time and at a certain price. And the details of these are, are quite complicated, but if you know about spread betting in sport, options are exactly the same as um, spread betting in sport. And they, they range from fairly simple things to, like that to very, very obscure, complicated, extremely mathematically complex um, things. Now, one of, the key co one of the key things about derivatives is that something which originally began as essentially providing insurance became something which provided ma the, the ability to massively take risk. So the simplest forms of derivative contracts, the first one I talked about, is all about insurance. By buying a certain amount of something at a certain date at a certain price, you now know at what rate you can trade, and therefore you've eliminated uncertainty. So these things started as a way of reducing risk, but for a variety of reasons, they became a way of vastly amplifying risk. And that takes us on to the third thing here, which are credit default swaps, which I mentioned simply because Warren Buffett, the well-known financier, described these as, in a well-known phrase, financial weapons of mass destruction. Now, these account for 54 trillion, you know, almost the size of, of global GDP. So what are these? They're in insurance contracts. How can an insurance contract be a weapon of mass destruction. A credit default swap is something extremely simple. If I am due a payment for someone, from someone, there is a risk they will not pay me, I can take out insurance, which will pay me if the person who's supposed to pay me doesn't. And that's a credit default swap. 
a simple insurance contract. And yet, they became a weapon of financial mass destruction. So this is, there's a real paradox built into these financial markets. There are huge amounts outstanding, and something which was developed to handle risk, to mitigate risk, became something that amplified and transmitted risk. So there's a real paradox going on here. Okay, some more scary numbers. These are selective numbers. And they, they, they're not, entire, not just about banks, but they're basically examples of the cost of bank bailouts. And you can see these are very large. A, some of you may point out AAG is not a bank, it's an insurance company. That, that doesn't affect the point. We're talking about extremely large numbers here. Okay. So the cost of the financial crisis in terms of bailing out banks was extremely high. Actually, that was quite a small aspect of the cost. And I'll, I'll talk about what the real cost, cost is later on. But there's another scary number. And here's a third scary number. Um, a guaranteed way to put people to sleep is to talk about a balance sheet. But there is a, there's a reason why I'm going to talk about, about a balance sheet here. This is the balance sheet of the Royal Bank of Scotland in 2008. And there were three or four things about this which I think are significant. The first is the size of this balance sheet. Now, as you all know, we have assets and liabilities. The two equal each other. So total assets of the Royal Bank of Scotland, and this was 2008, was 1.9 trillion. Okay. In other words, the balance sheet, the assets of the Royal Bank of Scotland were greater than the GDP of the UK. So, and this was not at all untypical, so these banks were extraordinarily large. Okay. So we're dealing with very, very large institutions. The second point I want to make about this is, if we look at the left-hand side, and we have the assets of the bank. Now, some assets are risky and some assets are safe. The first two assets are extremely safe. It uh, doesn't matter what they are, they're extremely safe. Items three and four are very risky or potentially risky. Loans can go wrong. Derivatives, well, we've just talked about derivatives. There's a lot of risk involved there. Now, look at the numbers. The Royal Bank of Scotland had enormous amounts of risky assets and really relatively few safe assets. Okay. So there was a lot of risk going on there. The, second thing I want, the next thing I want to point out is on the right-hand side. Now, balance sheets have to balance, but these balance sheets don't balance in the sense that assets and liabilities are not the same. The liabilities of this bank were 1.8 trillion. Their um, total assets were 1.9 trillion. What makes the difference is what's called equity. That's the value of the bank. Okay. Now, the value of the bank, 91 billion, sounds like a large number, but compared to the assets and liabilities of this bank, it was a tiny number. And a ratio that's going to be important to us is the one down here, what's called gearing, which, and that number is about 20. That number is a ratio of the bank's equity to the bank's liabilities. And this is an important number. Let me, let me tell you why. Well, how do banks fail? Banks fail in a very simple way. Banks fail if their equity is negative. So if I just go back and we look at this number here, 91.4, if that number goes negative, the bank fails. So that's how a bank fails. Okay. Suppose that the value of the assets of a bank fall. Now, as we all know, in the financial crisis, the value of assets fell enormously. What is supposed to absorb the fall in the value of the assets, and the, an exam the answer is equity. Okay. Now, R RBS had 1.9 trillion in assets, but it had 91 billion of equity. So, if the value of those 1.9 trillion of assets fell by 91 billion, 
Now that is only 5%. If the value of the assets fell by only 5%, the bank would fail. Okay? So the bank could withstand a fall in the value of its assets of only 5%. Okay. I pointed out uh, loans and derivatives, and they add up to about 1.3 trillion. Now, one point, so they have 1.3 trillion in risky assets. When the when the value of assets fall, this is has very strong immediate impact on the bank through what's called mark-to-market accounting. Now, suppose I have negative equity. Suppose my house is worth less worth less than my mortgage. I do not go bankrupt. If I'm in negative equity, what I do is I do not sell my house. I hold on to my asset and I wait until my asset has recovered value. So I only become solvent if I have to sell my house. That rule does not apply in this case. What applies in this case is what's called mark-to-market accounting. And that says the value of the assets on the bank's balance sheet is dictated by or is equal to the current price of those assets. So if the value of the assets fall, that's reflected in the balance sheet even if the bank does not trade in those assets. And that's very different from the household example where if the value of my house falls, I just don't sell it and I wait for better times. So this makes this, these companies vulnerable. Okay. So as we know, the financial crisis led to a crash in asset values, and that's why banks failed. They had very high levels of gearing. They had very little equity with which to withstand shocks. Okay, now here's, here's, here's a graph. And it's really quite an extraordinary graph, because what it's telling, it, telling us is the percentage of GDP that was... It, it tells us the amount of state support financial, for financial institutions as a proportion of GDP. So if we look at 2008 and we look at 2009 and we look at the blue bars, we see the UK. Something like 60% of GDP in 2008, over 70% of GDP in 2009 spent on rescuing financial institutions. The US, over 50% in those two years. So extraordinarily large amounts of state support. And this was all because these banks were so heavily geared that they could not withstand falls in the value of their assets. So let me say a little bit more about gearing and, and make a point or make, make a comparison to, to, to show just how large these banks' gearing ratios were. And let's take the case of Apple. Okay, we all know Apple. 2008, Apple had 18.5 billion in liabilities tiny compared to the banks. They had 21 billion equity. So for Apple, their gearing ratio was 0.88. Well, fine. Okay, compare that with the RBS. They had not 18.5, they had, had 1.8 trillion liabilities. And they had 90, 91 billion equity. Their gearing ratio was not less than one, as Apple's was. It was close to 20. Now, what does that mean? That means that Apple could survive a fall in the value of its assets of over 50%. The value of, of Apple's assets could fall by 50%. Apple would survive. RBS could only withstand a fall in the value of its assets of 5%. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, actually, RBS's gearing ratio was comparatively rather low. Now, these banks are operating in financial markets. Asset values, as we all know, are extremely volatile. The probability of the assets of large banks falling by more than 5% is 
a significant number. It's not an inconceivable thing. It is a, an event that you would expect to happen, given long enough. So basically, the financial crisis was a catastrophe waiting to happen. Okay, let me, make, let me show you some more gearing ratios. RBS was 20. <coughs> that was quite low. Barclays had a gearing ratio of 61. Deutsche Bank had a gearing ratio of over 50. So the proportional fall in the value of assets that these banks could withstand and survive was extraordinarily low. Okay? So these institutions were extremely vulnerable. Okay. So the crisis hits. And what these banks need to do in order to survive is to reduce their gearing. You often hear the phrase, these banks need to shrink their balance sheet. Like, let's think through what that actually means. How do you reduce gearing? In practice, what that means is that you very sharply reduce the amount of lending that you do. Okay? So banks very sharply have to reduce the amount of lending. So, for example, suppose you have equity of 100 billion. Suppose you've got a gearing ratio of 20. And suppose you really think you need to get it down from 20 to 10. Suppose you think you've got to get down to 10 in order to be more financially stable. Well, what does that mean? That means reducing your liabilities by nearly one trillion, one trillion pounds. In other words, you've got to reduce your assets by one trillion pounds. And that's what we mean by shrinking the balance sheet. You've got to reduce your assets by one trillion. And what does that mean? Well, if we go back and look at the assets of a bank, we are primarily talking here about loans. Okay? Loans are, are more than 50% in this example, RBS, but in all banks' assets. So, reducing your, reducing your assets by nearly one trillion means reducing lending by at least 600 billion pounds. And we're talking about one bank. We're talking about RBS. So what does this mean for the banking system? Well, if one bank needs to reduce lending by 600 million, the amount of contraction that's required across the whole system is, is, is almost literally astronomical extraordinarily large. So, this is where the financial crisis hits the real economy, and this is where we really start caring about it. So, huge reductions in lending by these banks, driven by the need to reduce their gearing ratios. And what does this mean? It means lending falls, and what is the impact of that? Well, the most recent estimate from the IMF is that between 2008-2009, global GDP <coughs> fell by nearly four trillion. <coughs> Four trillion pounds in it is an inconceivable, conceivably large amount of money. But that was the cost in output. Output is consumption. Output is income. Output is earnings. That was the cost of the financial crisis. Here is a graph of US and UK output growth. And you can see that UK output contracted by nearly 6%. An extraordinary amount. U US output, not quite as much, 4%. Look at the OECD, look at the G7, look at the Eurozone. Again, you see the same thing, a fall in output of around 5%. So you can see where this figure of $3 trillion comes from. Okay, so whose fault is it? It's the banker's fault. Not a, not a difficult uh, conclusion. What can we say? Were things getting out of hand? Yes, they were. And G7 economies definitely needed a contraction. But we didn't get a contraction. We needed a contraction, we got a catastrophe. If we blame the bankers, which bankers? How many bankers were involved? Probably no more than a few thousand. 
So between them, a few thousand bankers cost the world, say, $4 trillion. So how much is it? How much per banker does that amount to? A trillion. So excuse me, a, oh, tip the gear, a billion. Each banker involved probably costs the world about a billion pounds. That's not bad. Okay, so how did banks get themselves in this situation? Bunch of reasons. The first reason, I think, is expert overconfidence. Now, what's expert overconfidence? Expert overconfidence is the idea that experts think that things are more controllable than they really are. Okay? We deal with random events. Experts underestimate how random events are and overestimate their ability to deal with that randomness. And in the case of the financial markets, it was the belief that the volatility, the potential fall in these prices, really wasn't that bad. It was expert overconfidence. Lack of hindsight. Okay. We often talk about lack of foresight. What about what is lack of hindsight? Well, a lot of a, the way that many of these very complicated financial instruments were priced, these ones which in total added up to £600 trillion, the way many of them were priced was by looking at what had happened in the recent past on the assumption that what had happened in the recent past would continue to happen in the future. And the problem is, how far back does the recent past correspond to? Five years? Ten years? If you look back five or ten years just before the financial crisis, you were looking back at a very unusual period. Very low volatility, very high rates of growth, huge amounts of stability. If you look back 20 years or 30 years, the picture is very, very different. So, for example, many of these assets were based around the housing market. And the prices of these assets reflected prices of houses, the growth in house prices. Now, five or ten years back, there was a steady year-on-year -year growth. But look, 15 years back, 20 years back, 30 years back, that's not necessarily the case. So lack of hindsight led to overinflated values for these things. Next thing that's important is the old balance between greed and fear. The old saying about financial markets is it's a battle between greed and fear. Greed absolutely dominated fear. Fear was forgotten. And what does that lead to? That leads to excessive risk-taking. Now, it's well known that return is a reward for risk. So if you want to increase return, one way you can do so is you can take more risk. Okay? When um, President Clinton's second-to-last Treasury Secretary left office and went off to Wall Street, he sat down and he, he said, the bank he was at, he said, our returns are too low. We're not making as much. Our returns are lower than Lehman Brothers. How can we raise our returns? And the answer is very simple. We need to take more risks. And that's what they did. So there's a study from the Bank of England which looks at the increased returns to financial markets, specifically banking, in the years before the crisis, and said, how much of that increase is due to bankers being good at being bankers, being smart, being masters of the universe, and how much is due to the fact that they just took more risk? And the answer is almost all of it. In fact, all of it is due to the fact that they took more risk. They were not better at being bankers. They were more risky bankers. In addition, there's ignorance of new financial instruments. So there's this, is, this is lovely story that a banker came to Alistair Darling in the summer of 2008 when there were warning clouds, warning signals. People were worried about what's happening in financial markets. And 
a very senior executive of a financial institution, British financial institution, came up to the Chancellor and said, don't worry, it's going to be fine. We've stopped doing things we don't understand. Now, British financial institutions had assets of one, you know, trillions of pounds. They were, they were doing things that the people in charge did not understand. Extraordinary. The um, ending of the story is that this financial institution, two or three months later, was nationalised, so things weren't fine at all. And finally, what was going on? A wonderful Greek word that explains an awful lot, hubris. Who else can we blame? We can certainly blame the regulators. The uh, SEC in the US and the FSA, Financial Services Agency in the UK, uh, were shown to be toothless. An awful lot of the derivatives we talked about at the start are what's described as over-the-counter. Now, over-the-counter sounds sort of nice and cosy. Over-the-counter is not under-the-counter. It must be fine. Over-the-counter means that nobody, nobody really knew what was going on. Some derivatives are traded on exchanges. They go for an exchange. It's clear who is doing what. Risks can be balanced out. With most derivatives, that wasn't the case. Nobody knew. Regulatory capture. There's an ex-chief ex economist at the IMF who's now a professor at MIT called Simon Johnson who wrote a paper about regulatory capture in which he basically said regulators were captured by the industry. Now, this is a, a well-known thing that happens with regulators. They get captured by the industry. This happened very much so. But not just the regulators, the politicians. So, for example, in 2000, the US Congress passed a law making regulation of the credit default swap market illegal. They made it illegal to regulate this market. This, this, this measure passed without, discussion, without a vote. There were no votes against, but there wasn't even any discussion. There's a lovely story that in 2004, the big US investment banks, Lehman, Bear Stearns, Merrill, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, asked the FEC if they could possibly relax regulatory rules on them. Yes, it did. So what happened to those five banks, do you think? How many of them still exist? Two. Who else is to blame? Well, I can always get a cheap laugh by doing and making an economist joke. So let me do that. Do, can we blame economists? Perhaps we can a little bit. How can you, how, why can we blame economists? We can blame economists by, for producing idealised models, rather beautiful models of rather beautiful worlds that don't exist. Intellectually, very satisfying. I get a lot of intellectual satisfaction from constructing these beautiful models. But they didn't explain, and they don't explain even now, the financial crisis. More than that, us economists have an obsession with rationality. We really think things should be rational. And once we see that things are rational, it becomes difficult to explain financial crises, inherently irrational events. However, one thing I will claim for economists is that, fortunately, two key central bankers are well-known economists. Ben Bernanke at the Fed, Mervyn King at the Bank of England, two well-known economists, and they got it right when it mattered in the financial crisis. They took the right actions. 
Maybe they need to go further, but they did get it right. Now, there is a sharp contrast there with what happened in the 1920s when there was an equally difficult and dangerous shock. What happened there was that the actions of the policymakers made the shock worst and made the shock persistent. This time, policymakers, I think, did a lot better, and they were economists. Okay, here's one of my favourite graphs. What we've got here are the Bank of England's predictions of what, would, what was going to happen to interest rates. So, the green line tells us what the Bank of England thought would happen to interest rates in August 2008. They were wrong. Fairly catastrophically wrong. They did not foresee the sharpest fall in interest rates that have ever happened. Didn't see it coming. But this is August 2008. The financial crisis started, arguably, in the middle of 2007. We've been going in it for a year. Didn't see it coming. November 2008, well, we were in the middle of it all. Lehman Brothers had gone to the wall. Bank rescues were taking place all over, the, going on all over the place. And there was a recognition that interest rates were going to fall a bit, maybe get down to 3%. But by now, by the end of 2008, they'd be back up to 4% where they belong. Wrong again. February 2009, now interest rates have fallen pretty far by this point. But the belief in February 2009 was they'd be back up again. They'd be back up again by now up to 2%. Okay. Central bankers didn't see it coming. Okay, let me talk a little bit about monetary policy, how monetary policy works, and let me talk a little bit about a little bit of research here. Okay, so how does monetary policy work? The idea is actually very simple, and it can be re represented by a few, simple, um, a few simple arrows. For each of these arrows, there is a beautifully constructed mathematical model, which I would love to talk about, but I won't. And here's how we think the economy works. Interest rates affect output, output affects inflation. It, it really is as simple as that. Okay, so what should policymakers do? Well, what do policymakers want to do? They care about output, they care about inflation. They control interest rates, so they control the first item and they care about the other two items, so what should they do? Simple. What they do with the interest rate should reflect output. Interest rate should respond to output. Interest rate should also respond to inflation. Okay. Simple idea. It's called the Taylor Rule. Invented by John Taylor, who had hopes of taking over from Alan Greenspan at the Fed, taking over the US Central Bank. As a consolation prize, he uh, got to re-establish the Iraqi Central Bank. <laughs> Not much of a consolation. <coughs> OK, so the way the Taylor Rule works is very simple. What you have here are measures of output and inflation. Okay. Their output relative to what we think equilibrium is. Economists have got an obsession with equilibrium. We think things should be in equilibrium. So the blue line is output relative to equilibrium. This is what we think of as a business cycle. And the red line is inflation. It's inflation relative to the target, 2% in the UK and in most other countries. And the game here is simple. You choose the interest rate to get those lines as close to zero as possible. And that's what monetary policy is. Get those lines to zero. And you can see that prior to the crisis, things have gone really very well. Okay? This is the UK, but similar graphs could be done for other countries. For the 10, 15 years before that, things have really gone very well indeed. Okay? However, the crisis hit and things have gone less well. And what, we, what that implies, I think, is that this Taylor Rule works fine until the crisis hit. Okay. But this, this rule does not work well now. If we were to use this now, 
UK interest rates would be over 5%. Okay? Currently, Taylor rules imply interest rates of 5%. Inflation is too high. Output is growing. Okay? Interest rates. Nobody thinks interest rates should be 5%. They're at 0.5%. Okay? So this rule, this way that we think of, of monetary policy isn't working, has been abandoned. Okay, why? Now, two possibilities. One, the macroeconomy may have changed, and what we're observing is the response of policymakers to that change. That's the first thing. Secondly, the objectives of policymakers might have changed, and in particular, policymakers might have abandoned inflation targeting. Now, I'm going to look at the first and then look at the second. So let's unpick how we think the economy works. Interest rates affect output, output affects inflation. Let's look at that in more detail. When we say interest rates, what do we mean? The policymaker chooses the policy rate. The policy rate affects interest rates in the private sector, and that, in turn, affects output. Okay. Now let's look at that in a bit more detail. The policy rate affects what's called the interbank rate. The interbank rate affect, affects rates on mortgages, credit cards, bank loans, and those interest rates affect output. So what we have here is what we call the transmission mechanism, a chain of causation from policy rates to bank rates to credit card rates, overdraft rates, and these then feed into output. Okay, now, the interbank rate rose. Okay, I'll, I'll show you a picture of that in a moment. Why did it rise? For two reasons. I, I won't go through them in, in much detail, but for two reasons, risk and liquidity. Risk means banks were unwilling to lend to other banks because they didn't know how, if they were solvent. Two, Banks were unwilling to lend to other banks because they wanted to repair their own balance sheets. Risk, liquidity. Because banks became reluctant to lend on this market, what's called the interbank market, interbank rate rose. Now, before the crisis hit, what you can see there is the policy rate of the Bank of England, the bank rate, and the interest rate on the interbank market. I can't tell them apart. The relationship is, they are the same. Then the crisis hit, and this relationship broke down. You can see this more clearly here. You can see that the relationship broke down in the US, in the Eurozone, and Sterling. What you can see here is what's called the spread, the interbank rate relative to the policy rate. In other words, what you're seeing in this picture is the gap between the lines in this picture. And you can see there was a very sharp rise. Okay. Now, that meant that the way interest rates the way that the Bank of England's policy rate, the Fed's rate, affected the economy had changed because this chain of causation had been affected. A bit clearer here, what we can see here is in the green line, the policy rate, the orange line is the mortgage rate. And you can see that the mortgage rate sort of follows the bank rate. It has fallen a bit, not that much, not as much as you might have wanted, but it's fallen a bit. But look at those other lines. The purple line is the credit card rate. Policy rates have fallen. What's happened to credit card rates? No, they haven't fallen. Nor have overdraft rates. Those have risen. Okay? And it's these, ra these rates at the top which are affecting output, not the rate that the policymaker controls. So what does this mean? What does, it mean? what does this mean for monetary policy? It means a given policy rate leads to higher rates on mortgages and loans and therefore to lower output. So the same policy rate is now leading to lower output. So just to maintain the same level of output, the policymaker needs to cut the policy rate. Okay, so that's monetary policy. Now I'm saying a bit selfish. What does this mean for monetary policy modelling? What does it mean for people like me? I've got my Taylor rule. 
It used to work and I loved it and I knew it and it stopped working. How, how do I repair it? What we can do is we can add something to it, we can augment it. And what we can do is we can include the factors that caused the policy rate and those borrowing rates to diverge. Include the factors that drove a wedge between those rates and you can fix it. Possibly you can fix it, and that's the question. And what drives the wage, the factors we talked about before, risk and liquidity. So, you've got your rule, it used to work, it doesn't work anymore, we think risk is important and liquidity is important, put those in, does it fix it? Sort of, is the answer. Here's risk. I won't go into details about how we measure risk, but you can see a very sharp rise in risk. Not surprising. Here is liquidity. Huge, huge fall in liquidity. To my enormous distress... The Bank of England stopped publishing this variable in the middle of 2009, crippling my research at a stroke, <laughs> however. So we've got risk and we've got liquidity. Include those in our Taylor rule. Can we, can we explain monetary policy? And the answer is, yes, we can a bit, but for the, at the start of the crisis. By doing this, we can explain part, not all, but part of the reason why interest rates fell a lot at the beginning of the financial crisis. But it's not the complete answer. So let's go on and look at the second aspect, the second issue, which is maybe what policymakers are trying to achieve. Maybe their objectives have changed. Let's talk about that. Okay. What are the objectives of the Bank of England? And it's laid out in the... Uh, and the Bank of England Act, which you, you can see there, it has a remit. Does that remit include stabilising the financial system? Is that what policymakers have been doing? And in doing that, have they been neglecting their other role, which is to stabilise inflation? Have they been trying to stabilise the financial system rather than stabilising inflation? Okay, so let's tweak our, let's tweak our model a little bit by adding another channel, which is financial stability, stability of the financial system. And we now say interest rates have another effect. They affect the stability of the financial system. The lower they are in a crisis, the lower they are, the more we can stabilise the system. And st this financial stability affects output. Now, how does that change things? Well, interest rates should still respond to output. They should still respond to inflation. But now they would, should also respond to financial stability. There's an extra element there. Okay. Well, that sounds quite similar to what we said before. Augment the model. Put something else in. In this case, what we could add in are measures of financial stability. See if that fixes things. Here's a measure of financial stability. So it's uh, constructed by the IMF. You can see, or rather, it's financial stress. A lot of stress. That's the UK. Here's the US. So... Vast amounts of financial stress. Include these measures. What effect does it have? Does it fix things? The answer is no, it doesn't. The model doesn't work. And the reason the model doesn't work is interesting. The model doesn't work because the relationship changes. We assume that policymakers are following a stable relationship. They're, they're behaving predictably. What we're finding is they don't. There's a change in their behaviour. And this change in their behaviour happens more or less at the start of the financial crisis in April 2007. Okay. Now, this is, we say this on the basis of a statistical test. If we push the test a lot hard, 
What we also find is another change at the height of the financial crisis in October 2008. I say push the test hard, stretch the test, because we're, we're up against the limits of our data here, because this is a very recent event. And statistical tests need a certain amount of time to reliably tell us something. Okay? But it looks like there's at least one change and possibly two changes. So what does that leave us? It leaves us with the need for a different model. The behavior of policymakers changed when the financial crisis hit. So what can we have? What we can have is a simple-ish alternative, what we call a switching model, which isn't as complicated as it sounds. What it is, basically, is a situation where policy switches between different policy rules depending on whether or not there's a financial crisis. If there isn't a crisis, the standard Taylor rule works. But when there is a crisis, the standard Taylor rule doesn't work anymore. What we have is something very simple. When there's a crisis, policymakers simply set interest rates very low. Why? Just try and stabilise the financial system. Okay? So the first rule says when there's not a crisis, try and stabilise output, try and stabilise inflation. But when there's a crisis, forget that. Focus on the real problem, try and stabilise the financial system. Okay? And the idea is that the policymaker switches between the two depending on how likely they think it is there'll be a crisis. So does this model work? Yeah, it works much better. It predicts and explains very well the sharp fall in, in rates, interest rates in late 2008, which are in, as a response to the financial crisis. They are not a response to output inflation. And what we find is that policymakers do not respond to inflation in a financial crisis. What does that mean? It means the Bank of England abandoned inflation targeting. Now, when, I f when we finished this paper, I, I s emailed it to Spencer Dale, who is the chief economist at the Bank of England. And I was absolutely alarmed that he emailed back in half an hour. The reason I was alarmed is that this is the guy who is running the quantitative easing program. He is buying vast billions of government bonds. He shouldn't have been sat next to his email. He should have been out there shoveling money at the financial markets. But he was at his email box and he emailed back. And he said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> but I don't think so. OK. Is the financial crisis over? I'm an economist, yes and no. Most risk measures are back to normal, but some are not. Let's just have a look. Here's our risk measure that we talked about before. Okay. That's gone back to normal. The money market... There's a distinction we make between money markets and financial markets. The money market has gone back to normal, but remember we talked about credit default swaps, insurance contracts. These are the rates that you would pay, the insurance premiums you would pay to insure yourself against a British bank failing to meet the payments it owes you. If you have a bond from a British bank and you want to insure yourself against the possibility they're not going to pay or they don't pay in full, this is what it will cost you to do. And you can see that this, this was very low before the crisis, rose very, very rapidly, wobbled around a lot, but still is really very, very high. So when you look at these measures, financial markets don't think the crisis is over. And we all know about concern about sovereign bond markets. Here you can see this is not the interest rate that has... That, that, um, European governments, some European governments have to pay. It's the interest rate relative to the German interest rate. These are 10-year government bond rates relative to the German rate, right? So the actual figure is obviously higher than this. And you can see Greece. We know about Greece. We can see that Ireland has been creeping up 
really quite dramatically recently. We can see the same is true of Portugal, even Spain. The UK, not much has happened. Okay. Sometimes you, you hear people saying, look, the UK is in danger of turning into a pig. We might go down the same route as Greece. Well, there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. The UK bond rate is higher than the German rate. Now, why? Because there is an inherent risk in buying British bonds rather than German bonds, and that's an exchange rate rate. The UK is not part of the euro. These other countries obviously are. Okay, so for the, where the UK is concerned, it's exchange rate risk. But still, there's no evidence at all that the UK will turn into a pig. Okay, what next? I've nearly finished. I want to talk about interest rates, and I want to talk about quantitative easing, and I want to make a suggestion. Okay, now, UK interest rates are historically very, very low. They've never been as low as this. This graph only goes back to the 70s, but the Bank of England website has a data going back to the 1700s. They've never been as low as this. So the obvious question is, how low, how long will they stay this low? Now, policymakers always get this wrong. So here's another graph. This shows us what the Bank of England was going to think, thought was going to happen to interest rates in, well, first of all, August 2009. And in August 2009, they thought interest rates would start rising more or less by the end of that year. They didn't. Then we got May 2010, and the, the feeling there was, okay, they might start rising towards end of 2010. They haven't. August 2010, well, maybe by this point they were thinking, okay, maybe they're going to rise right at the end of 2010. Well, we're there, and there's no, no, absolutely no sign of this happening. The Bank of England produced a new inflation report today, and it's got a new prediction today. Now, this is the purple line. This is what the bank now thinks will happen to interest rates. And now it thinks, okay, maybe towards the middle of next year they might start rising a little bit. But I've shown you, six, I've shown you nine predictions there, and every one of them has been wrong. All of them thought interest rates would rise. In each case, interest, they've been wrong. Interest rates have not risen. So what are the chances that interest rates are going to rise in the next two years? Pretty low, I'd say. Okay. So that's interest rates. And let me finish off by talking about quantitative easing. And let me, let, me be, let me be nerdy for a while. What is quantitative easing? What's QE? Now, banks hold deposits at the central bank. And these are bank reserves, or they're part of bank reserves. Now, banks taking customer deposits, we saw figures for the RBS, actually only about a third of what they have as liabilities are customer deposits. They also borrow, th borrow funds, but they hold part of this as reserves and they, and they lend out the rest. Fine. So what's the money supply? The money supply is reserves plus loans. Okay. And if you take the ratio of the money supply to reserves, you get what's called the money multiplier, which historically is about 15 and that says if you increase bank reserves by 1 billion, you should increase the money supply by 15 billion. That's the idea of the money multiplier. Okay. So what is QE? What happens in QE is that, well, banks buy government bonds, government bills. Why? Because they are extremely safe and they are extremely liquid. Remember we talked about risk and liquidity? These, th these assets hit both tick both boxes. What happens in QE is that the central bank buys these from the banks, from the commercial banks. How does it pay for them? It pays for them by increasing the deposits that these banks have at the central bank. Okay? Maybe you read about, maybe you've read about how QE involves printing electronic money. 
that's exactly what's happening here. They're increasing the deposit of these commercial banks at the central bank. Now, what does that do? That increases bank reserves. And we've got the money multiplier, which we think is 15. And QE was £200 billion. Now, at a money multiplier of 15, an increase in bank reserves of £200 billion implies an increase in the money supply of £3 trillion. UK GDP, just over £1.5 trillion. Du double UK GDP. You know, a Weimar scenario. Implies massive increases in money growth. Okay? So you can see why people are concerned. Money multiplier 15, increased bank reserves by 200 million. We're looking at a money supply increase of 3 trillion, twice UK GDP. We're looking at rampant inflation. What happened? What happened is that actually the money, grow, the money supply did not double. We were not wheeling banknotes in round in wheelbarrows like in the 1920s. Exactly the opposite has happened. The money supply has basically become almost static. And you can see data here going back to 1985. You can see the money supply has on average grown about 10% in the years before the crisis. That has slowed to basically nothing, even though bank reserves have been increasing by 200 so, why, is that, what, why hasn't the money supply exploded? And the answer is that the money, supply, the money multiplier is not 15, it's not a constant, it's fallen. Let's think about why has it fallen. And it's very simple. Why has the money multiplier fallen? Because banks are holding on to increased reserves. The idea of the money multiplier is that banks hold part of increased deposits as reserves, a fairly small part, and they lend out the rest. What they've been doing is they've been holding on to all of it. Now, why have they been doing that? What were we saying at the start? We were saying that banks would want to reduce their gearing. They want to reduce the amount of risk that they're carrying. They've been, in other words, they've been increasing their reserves. So, by, by, hold, by holding on to the increased deposits created by QE, by accepting higher bank reserves and by not lending, what they've been doing is they've been reducing their gearing. Now, one of the problems here is that we are expecting two contradictory things from the banks. We're expecting them to increase their lending. We're almost forcing them, in some cases, to increase their lending. But we also want them to repair their balance sheets. Now, those two objectives are contradictory. We can't, we can't have both. Okay? What's been happening is that banks have been repairing their balance sheets. The consequence of that is a fall in the money multiplier. Okay, so what should happen next? Very nearly, very nearly finished. Okay, I'm just going to state the, the blindingly obvious. We need a more stable financial system because that's the only way, that's the only situation that would lead to resumed lending. Now, what can policy, and, and this will happen over time, but policymakers can speed up the process. And how can they speed up the process? By expanding quantitative easing. In fact, not just by expanding quantitative easing, by doing something else as well. So, what I think would be sensible would be to expand the size of quantitative easing. Currently, it stands at the stock of bonds they bought, it stands at 200 billion. I think that should be increased by steps of about 50 billion at a time. Now, on the nine-member Monetary Policy Committee, one person is in favour of that, uh, Adam Posen. One person is voting for higher interest rates now, and the rest are saying, let's just keep, it, keep things as they are. I'm very definitely in the dovish camp. 
we should expand quantitative easing. But more than that, we should also have qualitative easing. Okay, what's, what's qualitative easing? That's not where you expand the amount of assets the banks have. It's where you change the sorts of assets that banks have. And, what's, and how, so how does that work? Well, what happened in QE1, in the first round of quantitative easing, is that essentially the Bank of England bought government bonds. They bought government bonds from banks. And that was successful in lots of ways. It increased bank reserves. It was extremely helpful in financing the enormous deficit. It meant that an enormous number of bonds could be sold. Basically, commercial banks were buying bonds like crazy from the government and selling them at a higher prices to the central bank. Wonderful for the banks, but wonderful if we want banks to recapitalize themselves. However, banks continue to hold large amounts of toxic assets. QE is going some way towards repairing balance sheets, but banks still hold large amounts of toxic assets, and that's a problem. And this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that affected Japan in the 1990s. Japanese banks went through a very similar situation in the 1990s. Now, Adam Posen, the guy who wants to expand quantitative easing, is an expert on the Japanese economy in the 1990s. Okay? He doesn't want us to repeat the mistakes of, the, of Japan in the 90s. I think he's right. So what should happen? Qualitative easing. The central bank should buy these toxic assets. And we should give, in return, commercial banks nice, safe government bonds. Okay? We should buy these at less than face value. This is what we call a haircut. We shouldn't pay face value. We shouldn't pay sticker price for these. But if necessary, I think we have to pay more than we really think they're worth. Why? Because what we really need, and this is my final slide, what we need is banks to finally complete repairing their balance sheets. And although we may dislike the idea of giving yet more money to banks, after all, <coughs> each banker costs us $1 billion, even though we may dislike this idea, I don't think there's an alternative. What we have to do is take the toxic assets off the banks and give them nice, safe government bonds instead. And when this is done, only then will balance sheets be repaired and only then will banks resume lending and that's the only way that we're going to actually finally recover from the crisis. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. As Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences, I'd like to thank Chris for his inaugural lecture, which I thought brilliantly combined an overview of the causes of the, of the financial crisis with some very important policy suggestions for the future. I've never seen so many scary numbers, which I think illustrates the magnitude of the issues which leading macroeconomists like Chris have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I'm a non-economist, and one of the things that I most liked about the lecture was the way it illustrated the importance of other social sciences. I don't know how many people know this, but the word credit derives from the Latin word credere, and credere means to believe or to trust. And I think if you're fully going to understand financial markets, you need to look at things like behavioral psychology or the politics of regulation and a whole series of things. And following on from this point, I think if I had the chance to ask you one question, I think I'd like to hear more about is why did so many banks' economic advisors believe in, I think, what you called hubris in, in relatively mathematical and the theoretical, I call them simple models. They weren't simple in mathematical terms, but they were in a, in a wider social science sense. 
But I don't want to abuse my position as, as chair of this session because, as you've heard, Chris is going to take questions. So rather than ask Chris to incriminate economists and answer my question, I'm going to open the floor to question and comment. Can I ask you, please, to be relatively brief? Um, we don't have long, perhaps 10 or 15 minutes, so we'll try and get through as many questions.